Hey everybody and welcome to Roll It, a movie podcast. I am one of your hosts, Ryan, and with me as always is my co-host, Ty Lore. How you doing, Ty? What's going on, dude? We had we kind of had a double feature this week, uh, but we're mainly focusing on the 2020 film Mank, directed by David Fincher, written by his dad, Jack Fincher, sorry, Gary Oldman and Amanda Seyfried, um, and is based on the writer Herman Mankiewicz, who is the uh, screenwriter for Citizen Kane. And that's what the movie's about, is his process of writing Citizen Kane, and we'll get into the summary later, but... Because of its uh, content, I suggested we bu- we watch Citizen Kane in preparation for Mank. So we kind of had a double feature, and I'm going to ask you, Ty, what you thought of both of these films. You can go Mank first, Citizen Kane first, whatever you feel like. All right. Um, yeah, so I know some people be a, might be a little up in arms about this, but I had never seen Citizen Kane before, which, uh, if you don't know, is like regarded as the greatest film in the world ever. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's what they say, not me. Uh, no, it is. Uh, it's it's a really solid movie. So I I loved it. I thought it was great. Uh, first time watching it was awesome. And then I went right into right into Mank uh, the next day. So I watched Citizen Kane one day, went into Mank the next day, and that's the way you got to do it. I think. I think. I think that's the best way to to watch this movie. Um, Mank is phenomenal. Watching both of them back to back, like I did, I almost there were times where I had to remind myself that Mank is a new movie. Because of the way that they did it, it just flowed just so much like Citizen Kane did. Uh, and I I really enjoyed that a lot. But, um, I mean, yeah, I thought the – going to make – I thought it was a great movie. I really enjoyed it. Um, I loved the style of it. I loved the editing. I loved, uh, I loved everything about it. I, I loved the feel of it. We can talk about the casting a little bit. But Gary Oldman, he uh, – I think he played the role well. Um, I don't know if he looked – the best for casting, but I'm sure we'll get into that. Um, and uh, I just thought it was all around a great movie. One of my favorites so far that we've done this year, I think, because for wow. me, it, it rode the line like it was just it, it was in my wheelhouse. You know, I like documentaries. I like stories that are based on r- true events and going from Citizen Kane, which, you know, we talked about before we recorded the podcast, kind of dabbles a little bit in both the fiction and nonfiction worlds um, to a movie that kind of does the same, but it's, I mean, it's a little bit, it's more real. It's more, yeah. It's, than Citizen it's Kane, but they're, they, they're along the same lines. Right. And it's the same feel. So, um, it's, it's the same storytelling, which I loved. I thought that was genius. Um, so all in all, I mean, I thought it was a great movie. I thought it was excellent. Um, super happy. We did this movie this week. Uh, I gotta be honest. I wasn't too, too sure. I would like it too much because it's like a black and white flick, you know, about old time Hollywood. How, how, how fun can this be? And dude, it was crazy. I loved it. Um, you know, I'll I'll give it nine out of 10. What what about you? What do you think on it? This is, and you'd seen citizen Kane before, obviously, but it's been a while, but I thought that recommendation to watch Citizen Kane first was a great recommendation. I recommend everybody do that before they watch Mank just to refresh. But, um, what'd you think of this movie? Yeah, so, yeah, I'm definitely glad I decided to watch Citizen Kane first, and then, you know, we both did, um, because I, I probably hadn't, it's probably been, I don't know, five years or so, something like that, since I watched Citizen Kane, so I could have, like, got a lot of it, or some of it, or whatever, a lot of the tie-in and stuff like that, but I'm definitely glad it was super fresh in my mind, because, 
going in before I saw Mac, I thought it was going to be far more based on the, uh, cause I, I try to go in without knowing too much about anything, you know? Mm-hmm. So I kind of thought it was going to be more based on like the actual writing process and the production aspects of it and more like Wells would be in there more and stuff. But I think, I think it was, st- I was done super well the way they did it. I just wasn't expecting it necessarily to be like that. Regardless, I still am so glad I watched Citizen Kane first. Because first of all, I mean, it is, I mean, it's a fantastic film, Citizen Kane. Like, five out of five, by the way. But We always have different scales for ranking movies. Have you noticed that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I try to stay five. I try to stay on the five scale. I know, I know. I feel like I always And you try like, to stay on the ten. Scale, and you always go to the five scale. And then if I go to the five scale, you just decide to go ten out of ten on it. <laughs> um but yeah five out of five for that one that's i mean it obviously stands there as one of the greats of all time for good reason but yeah mank i i really like this um i can't some people i think the main a lot of the criticism it was boring and i can see why some people would think that um if it's just not up your alley i get it but i mean it, it was up my alley i i really enjoyed it i love the style like you said uh, I just think it, it worked really well set in that old time, uh, kind of set as an old timey movie, but yeah, I think, and like, we'll get into this, like the actual movie making aspects of why that works well, but you can tell this was shot for black and white. It's not like they shot it for color and then just put a black and white, yeah. you know, over top of it. It was yes. like all the lighting and the shadows work so well. It's just perfectly shot. Just gorgeous on that level dude the cinematography in this in this movie was amazing very good yeah but other than that i i i did like the i just enjoyed this the way the story was told and this i don't know it was just it was just interesting right after watching citizen king to get this you know inside look at exactly or not exactly but you know kind of what went down and why we were why one of the greatest movies of all time got created in the first place. And mm-hmm. dang it, I'm glad that Mank didn't back down. You know, say what you will about him with whatever, maybe, you know, ruining friendships or whatever like that. But dang it, I'm glad he went through with it because Citizen Kane is great. Yeah, Citizen Kane is amazing. Um, it's, it's such a good movie. Such a good movie. So, I guess uh, now I'll I'll do the uh, summary, and then uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, let's hear it. All right. In 1940, screenwriter Herman Mankiewicz is recovering from a car crash when he is contacted by wonderkind Orson Welles to write a script for a new project which Welles was given full creative control of by RKO. Herman, or Mank, gets to work on it and dictates to his new secretary. Flashback to 1930, where Mank makes up screenplays off the cuff with a writing group and in the process meets the actress Marion Davies and becomes friends with her and her husband, newspaper tycoon William Randolph Hearst. Back in 1940, Mank gets feedback that he was taking too long and his story is too jumbled. Then he really digs into the story. In 1933, Mank is at a party with Hearst, where he is clearly outnumbered in terms of political leanings with regard to the gubernatorial election coming up in 1934, with the Hearst-backed Republican taking on Upton St. Clair. Mank's studio, MGM, even creates fake election reels in support for the GOP candidate, much to Mank's chagrin. 
1940, he finishes the screenplay, but various people come to plead with him to change it, knowing the comparison to Hearst was obvious and that it would hurt him and Marion in the process. Sinclair loses the election in 1934, which, along with the election reel di director committing suicide, pushes Mike over the edge, and he goes to a Hearst party one night and lays in into Hearst for abandoning his ideals. With the script done in 1940, Wells visits Mank with the offer of a buyout, but Mank wants credit instead, thinking that this is his best work ever, to which Wells is not too pleased. But in 1942, both Mank and Wells receive the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay for the film Citizen Kane. End of movie. Even though Wells didn't write... Which I think he did... I think I'm he sure probably he did the rewrites or, or, you know, kind of edited here and there. Yeah. But, no, I mean, obviously it was pretty much Mank. Yeah. I mean, and the, uh, you know, the story, Citizen Kane has been, um, the dialogue, I guess, is almost verbatim as, as Hearst talked. And that would be something, obviously, that came from Mank. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, it's pretty clear. He, I mean, the meat of this is obviously from Mank, and then, you know, you got your Orson Welles flourishes, um, and I mean, that's not to take anything from Orson Welles, I mean, he, Orson Welles still uh, directed, starred, and uh, produced, I think, or helped produce it. I think he was the executive producer, yeah. Yeah, I think he, at least, yeah, one of the producers. Yeah, that's not to take anything away from Welles, who, I mean, still obviously left his mark on the film. And especially, he was only freaking 26 when this came out. I know. Come on. I know. It's insane. I mean, that's that's our age. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh... Sometimes I think about that, and I'm like, Orson Welles made Citizen Kane when he was 20. By the time he was 26, I'm 26. you like, I haven't made the best movie of all time. I haven't even come close. I haven't made the second best movie of all time. <laughs> yeah. Not even, <laughs> we haven't even made a movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so like... And I thought that was an interesting, uh, an interesting thing to put into the movie. This kind of spat between them, which happened, um, but you know the freak out with Orson Welles there, um, just a, an interesting thing to put in. Kind of like it just seemed not really out of place, but just kind of extra. Yeah, it, you know, I get that it was it was part of the story, and you know that's the way things shook out. But it just, it, I don't know. It seemed like a, a last. It's. It seemed like, hey, we need we need a little bit more drama with this. Yeah, and it seemed like a dig at Wells, which yeah. I'm just maybe a justified dig at him for you know trying to get out of there without giving Mike any any screenwriting credit. Right. Um. I mean, and that's kind of shady in itself, but I guess they, if they had a contract already drafted up, so. Yeah, it just comes off as Wells being just like I guess my like the thing I it comes off as him being kind of this. Uh, total showman with no brains behind the project at all when i mean i don't think that was true right now he definitely deserves credit for well not only the acting but yeah like you said i'm sure he had some he had some play in the, in the rewrites i'm sure he added a little bit of his own twist on there to make it more theatrical you know yeah and um, i mean he still was the director which is you know kind of important yeah exactly. uh, but yeah i just and, thought and that was starred in the movie so and star yeah so I guess uh, what do we do? You want to, we want to just like start by talking about the actual filmmaking itself and its style, which I think is a big part of this film's uh, allure. 
so if I was a betting man and I just got done watching Mank, I would I would say that you know maybe David Pincher wanted to he be so authentic with it that he might shoot it in film. Um, there were definitely some times where I, I saw throughout the movie where I was like, yeah, that was probably, that was probably on film. I'd be wrong if I bet it was on film. It was not shot on film. <laughs> it was shot in it was 8K, digital. which is, yeah. uh, like the highest tech possible, but they brought in some, um, I was, re- I was actually reading an, uh, article on IBC.org. That was an interview with, uh, Fincher and, okay. uh, I think I said Pincher earlier. But, I don't know. I don't know. If you heard me, you know what I mean. Um, but they they use they use some sophisticated designs to make it give it that film noir look like it was shot um you know in in the forties, like when Citizen Kane was shot. And like I said, if you watch these like back to back kind of like we did, it it seems like you could cut scenes and place them into Kane and you know obviously the it's higher definition, it's the picture is a lot more clear and, and, you know, you have like a lot more dynamic cinematography, but, um, as far as everything else goes, the lighting, uh, you know what I mean? Um, and I think, uh, well, just to go off of that, I think part of the reason that goes so well together is it's, I mean, it fits well in the time, I guess, which is true, but at the same time, citizen Kane was so far ahead of its time. It's, it's very easy to watch that film. Now it doesn't, it doesn't feel dated at all because of that innovative why it's re- I mean that's just one of the reasons why it's regarded as such a great film. Yeah. It's has this innovative cine- cinematography that I think helps it to be to kind of relate and uh to something like Mank that's kind of styled in that time but you can tell it's newer. Mm-hmm. But uh because Citizen Kane is so innovative and different from the all the other films of his time, you can kind of get that uh very similar vibe feeling between the two. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, yeah, it was just, it was amazing. You know, I don't know, like, I don't know <laughs> what else to say about the cinematography of it. It's Eric Messerschmitt who was mesh. Yeah. I said that right. Mesher mess Messerschmitt who was the, um, cinematographer about it. And in this interview on IBC.org, uh, you know, they talk about the film look that, that he loves the film look and everything like that. And he wanted to bring in some of those qualities, from shooting in film and the film stock and everything like that. Then he acknowledges obviously the downfalls of shooting in film. Um, because as much as those in uh, he says here, as much as those qualities that he loves, he says, but you're stuck with those qualities, making it difficult to deviate from them if they aren't exactly what you were after. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and, and they employed a lot of, of the same filming features, you know, that you found in that the citizen Kane kind of, was the forefather of, you know what I mean? Deep focus. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Having most of the, most of the image, um, if not all of yeah, it, the whole, pretty much the, yeah. I mean, pretty much everything in a few scenes, pretty much everything, but the deep background was completely in focus, kind of giving you a feel as if you're there, you know, because you're so focused on central characters or central uh, imagery that, your peripherals almost feel like they kind of do the focusing for you, um, much like in real life. Mm-hmm. Um, but Kane obviously brought forth that kind of innovation in filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Just and bonkers I thought that was, for the time. 
Bonkers, yeah, they were crazy. They were like, what are you shooting that at? F-22? Crazy son of a gun. I don't even know what cinema... cinema I mean, I'm just a regular old photographer, so F-22's up there. We can go F-32 on some some lenses, but... Um, anyways, I think Messerschmitt did a great job with matching that style and feel. I Like I said before, you could just almost cut out some scenes and place them into Kane, and uh, you know it'd almost be hard to flip-flop between the two or hard to tell the difference you know aside from storyline and stuff like yeah. that yeah yeah they they have one thing i don't know i was just gonna say yeah, they have very much the same vibe but go ahead yeah and i thought that was i mean like i thought that was great mm-hmm. um but one, one thing i think that mank did that i wished kane did because it was just so much easier to stay on the timetable the timeline was the title slides to tell you where you were if it was a flashback? But it was really cool because it was written like it would be written Scream. in a screen. Yeah, and I that yeah, he can't really do that with Citizen Kane because it just wouldn't make any sense. Well, right, <laughs> but and yeah, I, I think, get I get um, what you're saying. They could just put a black. He could have just put a black screen, and be like nineteen seventy six or or not right. eighteen seventy. Well, they wouldn't have eighteen seventy something. Yeah. But yeah, no, didn't I think I feel wasn't that there for when he was a kid? Didn't that pop up? I feel like it did. Um, like it said, eighteen seventy-seven or uh, something like it, that. It might have taken. It might have said the town. In the but movie. it didn't all the time. You you kind of it was pretty fluid. Yeah. You had to yeah, and and at times it was the in in Citizen Kane. Now <laughs> we're kind of doing the same thing. As we're <laughs> cr- criticizing Kane. It's meta tie. Um, but in times in Citizen Kane, you know, you would be in the future. Or after Kane had died, talking with his um, old friend Leland, mm-hmm. and uh, it'd be the reporter talking to him, and then other times you would flash back to him. You know, it was it was very fluid because it wasn't it wasn't a straight time timeline of like this is Kane when he was younger, this was him in his twenties, this was him in his thirties, then he went for political office, and he had this affair. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was very just jumping around. But by the end, you got all the pieces, and it clicked so well that you were like, "This is a very sad man." Yeah, and <laughs> uh, and that's why uh, he buys a lot of statues. That's why John Houseman was like, "Yeah, this is like garbage." <laughs> He's like, "This is a jumbled mess. Nobody will ever keep up with this." But I mean, it works obviously. But you get what he's saying. I mean, like you could, you, yeah, now you that, could kind of see his point. And in like in 2020, I mean, Citizen Kane works obviously and it worked for the time. But in 2020, you see something with like a jumbled narrative like this or you know something like pulp fiction or something you know some kind of non-linear narrative and you just kind of like oh you know that's just a thing now but i mean at the time you know he reads that script and he's like uh what (laughs) well they're they were so used to like theater plays yeah they're like that now this nobody nobody would be able to keep track yeah so did you like did you like all the kind of extra stuff they put in like uh and I'm thinking I know the answer but you know like the little irregularities like you see like the you know cigarette burn in the film and you know they do the the all those added irregularities and they do the fade outs very much in the time period of the 40s style movies like they fade out the light in the room uh did you like yeah. all that No I didn't like it I loved it <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> um, that was about as cheesy as the fade outs. Um no, I, I think yeah. I I think that was just another nod to Kane. And uh 
and I think it worked really well for this because it, since it since the storytelling was so much of the of the same, it was so much of the similar fashion uh, as Kane was. I think I think it was just like a nod to to Orson Welles because you know as much as the film like we talked about a little bit earlier ends on that sour note of throwing a little bit of drama between Wells and um, Mank, it it does give him a lot of lot of nods throughout this whole film oh, yeah. i mean like like you said like you, you can despise them all you want for maybe being a little greedy with uh not wanting Mank's name on the uh credits or whatnot but he was 26 years old making the best movie or he was he was 26 years old making a movie that'll last forever probably yeah be, end up being one of the greatest of all time and yeah yeah i just don't i don't think you can look at his the rest of his like uh, filmography and be like, no, he was a uh, you know when he didn't <laughs> when he didn't try to steal the writing of somebody else, he just made garbage. Uh, which it's just right. you know not true. You know he kept making good stuff yeah, for a while. Very very. False. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I yeah, but I it, it still worked. I mean it, that's the way it happened. So I mean I get why that's why it's in there. And I like the nod like uh, when he when he I don't know if that's true or not. I kind of I doubt it is, but when he he flips out and he like th- he's throwing all that stuff, and then Mank's like, "Oh, uh, Kane needs to Kane needs to have a freak out moment." Yeah, <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, that's pretty freaking convenient." And it is funny too because in in Kane, um, in in Citizen Kane, that spot like that was so out of that was almost out of character from what you'd seen throughout the entire movie. Yeah. Cause he was like know? so calm and just like matter of fact, the whole movie. And then you see him have all this well, emotional outburst. Right. And Hearst was very much portrayed as that same figure in Mank. Um, yeah. Even after Mank's blow up at him at his own house, <laughs> just like, he just slowly walked into the door. Calls my cab. Talked about the, uh, yeah. Calls him cab. Slowly walks into the door and tells him about the, um, Organ grinders monkey. What is the, uh, yeah, which that was in Citizen Kane too, right? Am I not? Uh, it was in Mag. Was- it was in Mag twice. That might be what you remember. And he mentions it at the beginning of the movie. Uh, Mank does, and then at uh, the end it comes right, back. That's right. Yeah, I don't think it was. In okay. Kane. Yeah. See, the movies are the movies are too similar. <laughs> I'm just mixing them up now. <laughs> making okay. stuff I had up. my notes. That was a. I, I had that in my notes that that was another nod to Wells, but that makes. I mean, that makes sense. Um, more sense that it was just kind of in my head because of watching it the night before, and then running them together but um i yeah i think that whenever i was watching citizen kane and that scene happened i was kind of like well first of all i was like what a one take like you know what i'm saying because like if you screw that up nobody wants to reset that set. yeah you can that was a one and done yeah you got one chance at it and apparently wells cut his hand during that scene um and kept going and later said that he was just too too uh, overtaken by the character, which I find is funny because he was he's a twenty six year old trying to play a seventy year old, <laughs> and his mannerisms yeah. were not that of a seventy year old. No, that, I mean, yeah, I mean, it was pretty clear that he wasn't a seventy year old. But yeah, hey, I digress. Do what you can. Um, I thought, I mean, besides that, besides when he was super old, you know, and you do you see those hallway oh, shots. They of him aged him up. so well for nineteen forty. They aged him super well. Um, yeah, I don't want to get too much on the cane, but yeah, they, they did it super like when he plays a freaking like a middle-aged or older middle-aged man, like that it's good. It's really good. Yeah. And every, I mean, they do it. 
because everybody's obviously aging and de-aging. So, yeah, it's fantastic. But anyway, I digress. Yeah. <laughs> this is uh this is not the Kane movie podcast or the the Kane podcast. Yeah, it's a story for another day. I'll, yeah. Um but going going back to that scene where he does just like throw that oh, there needs to be a blow up in this script. Uh I almost think it it's kind of it was kind of funny because you're just kind of like, well, that wouldn't make sense. And then knowing like watching Citizen Kane and knowing how I felt about it, I was like, yeah, it doesn't. <laughs> but um, it's the one less, it's the one more speck of drama, yeah, you know, yeah. added into it. What did, you know, we, we talked about aging a little bit here. and we, we talked about this a little bit before we started recording too. What do you think of Gary Oldman in this movie? Uh, I think, I mean, as usual, I think Oldman's a fantastic actor and I think he puts on a great performance in this. At first, you know, when I did the math, I was like, all right, so in 1933, or 1930, he's going to be like 33 years old. Gary Oldman does not look like a 33-year-old, you know, doing the math in my head. But then, you know, you look up pictures of Mankiewicz, and he doesn't look great for his age, you know. And that's what, when you when you factor in a lot of alcohol. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I said, and, in like, when I wrote my review in Letterboxd, I was like, yeah. So it's hard. It's kind of hard to believe that he's a 33-year-old at or whatever, mid thirties, half of this movie. But at the same time, like maybe that's the point, maybe Gary Oldman was the point because to make him look so old because of that alcoholism. Yeah. And we're, we're talking prohibition. They're not drinking light beer. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Yeah. They're drinking the stuff that makes you blind (laughs) thing. They're drinking what's made up in the mountains, boy. (laughs) The stuff will age you 20 years just by smelling it. Oh shoot. But yeah, no, I, I really like old. I think the, Pretty much everybody was great in this. I thought, uh, who played Wells? Tom Burke. I was, I was, I was worried because I mean, I just love, I love the timbre of Orson Welles's voice. That's that's yeah. probably like the, one of the best parts about watching Susan Kane, just the way he talks. It's just like, oh yeah. man, music to my ears. But I thought he he did pretty well. Uh, the you know the small amount he was in there, but obviously Oldman, Seafried. Lily Collins, they kind of steal the show, uh, and they're all they're all great. Yeah, um, I would like Tom Burke. He played a he he looked he looked a lot like Wells. Yeah, yeah. Which is crazy because when we're talking age, I just had to look him up because I was curious. He's thirty nine. Yeah, Wells always kind of looked he he looked like a floater. Like you never knew how yeah. old he was. I know it was like, oh, if, if well shaved the goatee, he might be twenty-seven. But if he grows it out, he's pushing fifty. <laughs> I don't really know what to tell you. Yeah. So, one of the things that I thought was kind of weird that they did put that he did put in there was so that that director, like the new the like uh, whatever voter reel thing that they make, the director for that, yeah. the one that kills himself, he that guy didn't exist. Like there was an actual director for those that didn't kill himself, so I thought that was kind of a weird. I bet he hates this movie. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't think he's alive, but um, all right. But yeah, I just I kind of thought that was an odd, uh, or at least I believe from my what uh, my sort of what the sources I found. Um, I just kind of thought that was an odd, uh, an odd choice. I mean, I get it for narrative reasons, but odd to put that in there. Uh, in the middle of everything else. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I. It's it's for me. It's kind of the equivalent of the freakout scene in Citizen Kane. It's just to kind of it's like yeah, seems out of place. It adds a little bit of drama, but it, it, a little bit of unneeded, and you know what I mean. Like I just think you could have it, it, it could have like it would have been fine without that. Like I get the point. It was driving yeah, home, and we'll yeah. get into that in a minute. But I. I think it would have been fine, like the the scene where he's at the party or whatever, um, the GOP party. I think that was, I think that was enough. All the things that happened, yeah, there, that was that the, was that enough was to when do. Everything kind of came to a head to justify him being pushed over the edge and going to the party. You know, the going drunk to the party later. Yeah, I think it, it, artistic it, choice, fine. I, you know, right. And we don't know. We don't know Herman Mankiewicz by any means, but um, the sympathy toward like the sympathy to that was almost out of character for him too. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't like it put him off course all that much. Pretty. I mean, you know, he was kind of somber about it. Yeah. And you could tell like, I I mean, I just think that was meant to, you know, symbolize this, uh, his, uh, ideals of, or his thoughts that Hollywood wouldn't actually affect people like the voters decisions. He's like, no, that's right. that's absurd. We it only in the only people that could be swayed by this were people under voting age. You know, I think he says at yeah. one point uh, or people that believe King Kong's 40 feet tall. And and then I think that is what's supposed to make him realize like, oh, but I think it, I think he realized that with the the vote itself, like at that party. But I it, I don't want to get too far into that rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of with you. I mean, I think he also realized it when he gained double the debt that he had lost. Yeah. 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 That was weird. Double. Yeah. That, I mean, like, that whole thing too. I was just like, I mean, you know, again, call a gambler a gambler, but I don't even think a bad gambler would make that. Bet. <laughs> but it was on principle. Hey, let's he, go double or nothing on something. You, like he knew he was going to lose, right? He knew he was going to lose, right? You would think you would think I'm pretty sure he did. Anyway, so yeah, while we're talking about it, let's let's dive into the the I mean, I think the main or one of the main things this movie's driving at is a critique of uh the Hollywood structure and both well, ob- the obvious critique of old Hollywood, but I think uh the critique of Hollywood Hollywood past and Hollywood present and Hollywood future all all tied up into one cuz I think it's in many ways, it's the same now, and it'll always be the same. It's just the nature, the nature of the beast, as they say. Only now it is, uh, it's drying up a little bit more with um, things like Netflix and Hulu and YouTube putting out their own originals, right? Which, which, in a way, it's drying up, but at the same time, like now more than ever, uh movies and television or whatever uh is just content it's not necessarily like uh made for uh as an artistic i mean some of it is but you just think about like the streaming all the streaming services and this massive um oversaturation of the market and everybody's just Netflix is just making series just to make series. And like, how different is that from the MGM guy saying like, you know, uh, the magic of the movies is us creating something and selling it and selling it for a memory. And they don't own anything. They just like think they own something or whatever. 
Um, and how different is that from Netflix doing the? I mean, it's the same exact thing. They're just selling, you know, content. They did make not, this movie though, <laughs> and that's why I th- it's kind of a meta look. <laughs> like you know, like Netflix is like, but but not us though. <laughs> um, because yeah, I think I think you could say Netflix is like the new, or streaming is the new Hollywood, and especially you know with that new the announcement the other day with HBO Max said they're taking or Warner Brothers. You on no. What? I was just going to ask you if you're on Nolan's side. Yeah, I mean, I, I get it, dude. Uh, and I hope it doesn't last forever. You know, it's not, I mean, it's not supposed to, but I'm just worried what the ramifications are with what's going to happen. You know what I mean? And yeah, it seems, it seems like a dangerous door to open. But yeah, I, or I mean, I shouldn't say it seems like I could see how people like Christopher Nolan could see it as a dangerous door to open is what I should say. Yeah, exactly. And then same with, uh, um, what's his name? Uh, I always want to say Alejandro Villanueva, but that's definitely the Steelers line. Um, uh, uh, Danny Villeneuve. I totally understand the concerns and I hope movie theaters do not go anywhere in the near future, you know? Or in the far future, I guess I should say, because they are going somewhere in the near future. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just uh, it's it's interesting that things are things are shifting, but at the same time, like now, like Netflix and Hulu and whatever HBO, Disney Plus, or it's the new Hollywood. It's the same. It's the same kind of system that was. Is it's just a it's just changed and under a different name. So I think the the one of the things this touches on is like the power of Hollywood to kind of sway things or the power of yeah. uh maybe not Hollywood necessarily as a you know proper noun but the power of cinema or film or like, I guess those are political newsreels right. or whatever so I mean, any kind just, of just the same any kind of media how it can sway people and obviously Manx on one side of things in like 1930. And that's why I think you have that that room where all the writers are just literally making something up on the spot. Like the, whatever it is, Frankenstein. How or, cool. Would, yeah. How cool would that be to be part of that? <laughs> you did. Those guys are sharp. Um, but at the same time, they're just like, you know, who cares? It's just a Frankenstein movie. We're just here for a paycheck, you know? And right. I think that's what Mank thinks at that point. He's like, these these films don't have actual power over people. It's just a way it's just a way to make a buck for me and, you know, a little escapism for somebody else. Um and but then obviously to, Oh what go ahead. Uh, I was just gonna say, you know, not to continue to go back to Kane, <laughs> but um it mirrors Kane's uh view of newspapers. I think it would be fun to run a newspaper. Yeah. Yeah. And then by the end of it, it's a it shows that it's a powerhouse bigger than he anticipated it to be that can help form the opinions of the public. Yeah. The same way that Mank slowly learned that Hollywood is a bigger influence than he originally thought. Yeah, it's just a long arm. It's like the, you know, extended arm of the power structures to be. Um, mm-hmm. and I, there's that line in Citizen Kane where, uh, I think it's his wife. They're at, like the dinner table and she's like, no, well, they'll believe cuts her off. He says, they'll believe whatever I tell them to believe. And yeah. I mean, obviously 
you can see exactly where that line comes from here with, you know, Manx uh, discussed with, you know, what's what's that guy's name? Thalberg um, was his. Uh, like, yeah. The first time he uses the the only the only people who will believe that are the people who think that uh, King Kong's 10 stories tall and or no, no, no. Uh, I'm thinking of Meyer uh, is his main. Oh, line. oh, oh, you're LB. Yeah, LB, LB right. Meyer. Yeah, who yeah. was the whatever chairman of MGM? But yeah, so I think that was a you know those it's like him and Hearst are kind of the ones that are uh, pulling all the strings and kind of telling people what to believe, whether it's mm-hmm. through the newspaper like Hearst or it's through the money he finances or he, the money he shuffles to the movies to do whatever they tell him, whatever he says to do. Yeah. Do you, what'd you think of that little nod to Leo the lion though? Huh? The, Oh, he says the that's movie. the only star is Leo the lion. Yeah. The only star in MGM is Leo. the lion. <laughs> yeah. Don't you forget it. <laughs> um, and me, uh, and yeah, and me. <laughs> that was under his breath though. But so do you think, do you think this movie is saying like, uh, maybe like we should be wary of Hollywood's power or I guess what is, what's this movie critiquing? Um, the Hollywood's power structure in general or that, you know, there shouldn't, nobody should have this kind of power regardless of whether they have good or bad beliefs. I I don't know if it's so much about, I don't know if it, I shouldn't say, I don't know. I don't think it pinpoints Hollywood's power. I mean, it pin. Well, that's a dumb way of saying it. It definitely pinpoints Hollywood's power, but I don't think it's making a statement about only Hollywood's power, if that makes sense. Um, in the same way that just because Citizen Kane focuses on the newspaper in the same aspect, I don't think it's solely only talking about the newspaper. I, I think it's almost, um, you know, the, these movies are almost just as much a lesson in like critical thinking and, and showing you why it's good to be an independent, you know, or, or to think independently, I guess, than to just buy into this giant of whatever, you know, corporation or whatever greed or, or whatever the case is. Um, I think that's the quote unquote monster of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I would largely agree. I think I think the there's like the the thin line between what if this film's saying, um, you know, be careful how you wield this. You know, the old Uncle Ben line with great. I was just going to say, let, not, to, becomes, not to bring another movie into this episode, but have you seen the OG Spider Man? <laughs> with great power becomes great responsibility. You know that kind of thing. Like, be careful how you wield this because you'll get a lot of people to believe whatever you put in front of their faces. Um, mm-hmm. that can either you know meld their minds consciously or subconsciously, or if it's saying like, no, nobody should have. There shouldn't be any like conglomerate or uh, industry that has this much sway regardless. I don't know. There's a fine line there of right. of those two options, but I think I think it could be saying either one. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely showing you well it's you know it's kind of funny it's ironic that we're talking about what this movie's trying to tell you what to do when this movie's trying to tell you not to let media tell well you i wouldn't do. take i mean i i get what your point i think it's more of a uh this isn't telling you what to do it's telling like hollywood like stop it 
hey, yeah, guys, right. like maybe Hollywood shouldn't exist in the form that it is in, which I don't think will ever not be in that form, uh, regardless of politics right. or however it changes. I think it'll always be run, give or take, the same way. You know, you'll always have this power structure in this you know, hierarchy or system of control and, it, and you know, influence. Yeah. And if you don't, it's just going to be broken down into little minions of that. Like we had talked about with the streaming. Yeah. Services. The streaming services are going to become the new, uh, Netflix is being going to become Warner brothers or Hulu's beginning going to become MGM. Uh, yeah, I don't, I, I mean, I don't know if the, those ones, you know, MGM or, uh, Warner brothers or whatever will actually be done, done. But, Obviously, like Netflix and Hulu and HBO Max, they're gaining more and more traction of becoming, you know, a studio in and of themselves. For sure. I mean, they're dumping millions and millions of dollars. So, into that. and that was, I don't, I don't think you did this consciously, but your little dun dun is the same thing, like the Netflix. <laughs> whenever you turn it yeah. on, yeah, very, very sly little. Must have uh, been subconscious. Um, yeah, <laughs> nice little pun there, Ryan. For the hat to you, sir. But yeah, so I think that's like either, and that's why I think. I mean, obviously this had to be released somewhere, but it's kind of funny that it was least released as a Netflix film. But I think even right. even as because this is very much in like a condemnation of movies as content to be just like sucked up by the by the masses, you know. But I think this is uh, you know. you can kind of take that correlation, even though it's obviously a critique of old Hollywood, the correlations there where it's like, you know, these new streaming services or whatever, this new form of Hollywood, uh, whether it be in the physical location or not, is just going to be the same thing. Right. Whether it's broken up or in different places or whatever, it's still the same. It wields the same influence and power. uh... And, you know, that's probably not a good thing. Or it's a dangerous thing. You'll never almost you'll never be able to kill the beast. It'll just re you know, just keep growing its head back. So yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a dangerous game to play, I guess, according to uh yeah. this film. Yeah, and I, I mean I definitely think that's something that it was trying to highlight for sure. Yeah, definitely. Did we want did we talk about the organ grinders monkey or did you mention that as something we wanted to talk about? We mentioned the organ grinders monkey as the phrase, but um we didn't mention the symbolism i guess yeah i guess so yeah well, of it portrayed through hollywood but i mean we kind of did the same yeah i mean that's pretty much what we've been saying so. what we've been talking about but like yeah so like mank is supposed to be the monkey and you know hearst or whatever powers that be that are you know um the big the big wigs i guess we'll call them they're the organ grinder the man yeah and the the monkey thinks that he has control he thinks he can do what he wants. He thinks that he can just stop. Every time he dances, the music plays. Yeah, he thinks that if he stops dancing, then the organ grinder will go, uh, organ grinder will starve, and the organ grinder's kind of at uh, at the at the will of whatever the monkey wants to do. But I mean, that's why Hearst tells him it is because he's like, no, you know, if you if you if you don't play the game, if you don't dance the way I want you to dance, then you don't, you don't get, you just get a new, you know, yeah, well, just, yeah, you don't get another, you can't just go to a different job or, you know, do a different dance. Um, yeah, we just, you know, 
You just old yeller you and get a new monkey. <laughs> but yeah, so I think that's, I mean, that's the comparison that's being made. And which is apt because obviously the film ends with it saying that uh, Mankiewicz never wrote another film again and never uh, had credit for another film. So, yep. I mean, you can tell, I mean, Hearst, Hearst got the, I mean, they neither of them got the good end of the, <laughs> good end of the deal, I guess. I mean, in looking back, of course, you can say, you know, Mank was the writer of like one of the greatest films of all time, but I mean, he never got to write again. And I got, of course, this movie didn't help Hearst at all. So no, but his family is still one of the richest families in America. Yeah. I mean, they're, <laughs> I'm not shedding a <laughs> so, tear. I don't, I don't think he did too, too bad. I'm not shedding a tear for hers. No, definitely not. Uh, oh, you kind of, you feel not. bad for, uh, Davies a little bit. Cause like, you know, she was friends with Mank and then he kind of threw her under the bus. And he says that a few times, like, no, it's not about her. It's about him. But at the same time, he's kind of friends with both of them. And he's just like, all right, <laughs> now you're, and now you're going to play like a, you know, a dumb, uh, a talentless actor in this movie that I'm writing. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, you know, it, it's very, it's, it's almost funny too, because as much as the storyline of citizen Kane is on Hearst, the storyline of Mank is on or, uh, sorry, <laughs> let me back this up. <laughs> Citizen Kane's storyline is reflected in both Hearst, which the movie was written about, but in also also in Mank. Am I am I making this clear? Um, I don't think not I am. really. the The relationships are almost paralleled in Mank and Citizen Kane, even though Mank was writing about Kane's Mal relationship, basing it off of Hearst's. It's this weird love triangle. Oh, I see what you're saying. Which I mean, in my notes, I, in my, in my notes, it, it, it's clear to me. Um, <laughs> it's so like the relationship between uh, Hearst's wife and Mank is almost reflective of the relationship in Kane with Kane and his wife with the singer. Yeah, with the with the girl. How yeah. it's and how in the end of Kane in the end of Kane. Um, obviously it blew up and bit him. And in the end of Mank, it obviously kind of blew up and bit him too, because he had lost this friend that he had, you know, kind of held so dear. Yeah. Um, and, and that same relationship was kind of mirrored, which is, I thought was interesting because the writer had the same relationship almost like the writer had a parallel relationship as the one that he was writing in, the movie yeah no and i think i mean obviously that's like one of the first scenes in this was when he sits down and he, now i can't remember who says it but uh i think it might be john houseman says it uh he says right you know what they say write the story you know uh right and i that's obviously what happened just like right. you said in so many ways you know obviously his relationship with Hearst to get the inside look at his life but also his own relationship with these people kind of affected what he put into the story. Um, For sure. So I guess on that note, do you think is, is Mank like the hero or the villain, or is he like a good guy, bad guy in terms of like that he did this, you know, the way he acted in various ways, or is it just, he's all of the above it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, it, it wasn't exactly not slimy, that he kind of did that and threw right. the people that were supposed supposedly his friends under the bus. But man, at the same time, I'm glad he did. 
<laughs> yeah. I, I mean, like... And that scene, in that scene where he's like, uh, she says, if if this doesn't get ma- him and uh, Marion Davies are talking, she's like, if this doesn't get, if this doesn't get made, I hope you forgive me. And he says, if it does get made, I hope you can forgive me. And I was yeah. like, man, I'm glad she had to do the forgive him because this movie is so good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, I think too, I really liked the fact that, um. I mean, you know, when LB blew up or well, when Mank blew up at that dinner and LB yelled back at him when it was just LB, Hurst and Mank. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like, you know why he's been paying half your salary? Because he likes the way you talk. It almost, you know, when we're talking about heroes and villains, it's almost like um, Hurst isn't necessarily a villain in Mank's life, but he's, you know, he, he almost walks that he almost dabbles back and forth between being the hero and the villain because in, on one hand he kind of fed the hand or bit the hand that fed him well i mean he did bite the hand that fed fed him hard um <laughs> but on the other hand too like mank writing this movie was just as much a villain in in her life in the end of it all all right and and he was kind of a hero, he, you know what I'm saying? That's why I'm kind of saying he's like both because they were the villains in each um, other's been, lives, like or in each other's eyes. Yeah. By the end, when it all right, when all said and done, and it's it's so. I mean, to be honest, now we just need a movie about Hearst going through all this, shot in the same style. <laughs> and I think if we can make that, Ryan, we're in the, we're in the money. <laughs> Where's that funding at um, Netflix? Let's get greenlit. But exactly, dude. And then you complete the whole love triangle of all these relationships that like had this building of tension between them. So I, I think the yeah, I mean, like to answer your question, was he the hero or the villain? He was both kind of. Um just as much as Hearst was in his life and Kane is in Kane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um I guess that's that's probably it for me. Do you have anything else? No, I don't have anything else. I do have a uh interesting tidbit about uh xanadu if we want to snap back to kane i feel like this this podcast has been just as much about citizen kane as it was about mank but i also feel like this movie was made to be talked about in tandem with citizen kane yeah it comes with territory yeah uh so i told you this before the podcast but xanadu which is citizen kane's mansion castle getaway paradise um is based off of hearst's castle which is uh, eloquently named Hearst's Castle. So and that's in California, and uh, it's it's kind of so. Mank and Hearst both died in 1951, ten years after Citizen Kane came out, and about 70 years after Citizen Kane was released, which was obviously about Hearst, written by Mank. Uh, it was screened in the Castle's theater room for the first time ever. Um, because obviously Hearst wasn't much of a fan of that movie there. And it was screened for about 60 people, and the tickets were $1,000 a piece, and I just thought that was really interesting. And if you thought the movie Citizen Kane showed uh, Kane as a overwhelmingly overwhelming spender of very elegant things for uh, no reason, look up some photos of Hearst Castle, because dang. <laughs> That's it looks like uh it looks like a um Persian king's suite. It's crazy. It's nicer than the inside of the Sistine Chapel. Yeah, it's pretty uh, uh it's pretty awesome. It's 
pretty crazy. It's uh, it's insane. You can swim in the pool there for a couple for a couple hundo. I think like twelve hundo will get you in the water. Anyways, so yeah. On that note, Ryan, should we should we roll the credits? So, uh, Ty, what are we doing next week? Well, since it's going to be a few days before Christmas when the next episode comes out, we decided to go festive. We're going to be doing the 1988 John McTiernan film Die Hard, starring none other than Bruce Willis. (laughs) 40 stories, 12 terrorists, one cop. Um... So, yeah, we have that to look forward to. Yeah, um, and I'm sure the conversation will come up whether it's a Christmas movie or not because that comes up every year. But, hey, you know, throw a little uh, controversy into the mix, see what happens. Yeah. Uh, that's why we're doing it Christmas week. So, yeah, so that's what we'll be back with next week. Um, what else, Ty? Where can people stay up to date with us, Ryan? So you can find us at, or on, I should say, on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Roll Up Podcast on both of those. And then if, you know, you want to do a little longer conversation with us, you can email us at rolluppodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, so stay in touch with us, any of those places. Um, suggest films. Talk about films we've already covered. You know, what your thoughts were on anything we've covered what your thoughts were on mank citizen kane whatever you got shoot it our way uh we'll talk about it and uh i think that's that's all we got this week if you're like wow i just listened to you guys for an hour and i want a little i want to hear the same thing but in a condensed version you can follow us at ryan ernkoff and tyler on lettered box ryan posts a lot more often than i do but i'll get there eventually <laughs> yeah i think uh <laughs> my my username is what R. R. Ernkoff, R. J. Ernkoff. I don't even know. If they just look up Ryan Ernkoff, he'll pop up, right? Yeah, I think if you just search, uh, you search either of our names, we'll pop up, I guess. But yeah, cool. All right, man. Uh, well, on that note, I'll see you next week. And Rosebud. Uh, yeah, Rosebud. Oh. Figure that one out. Mm-hmm.